Shalom Aleichem, and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. We saw last time how the revolt begins when Matityahu ben Yochanan refuses to obey the Greek officials when they come to his hometown of Modiyin, how he triggers the Jewish uprising against the Greeks and flees with his sons into the hills, how God-fearing Jews flock to him and swell the ranks of their army, and Matityahu's last instructions to his sons before he is Nifta at a hoary old age. Now the very first verse of chapter 3 goes, and Yehuda HaMakabi rose up in place of Matityahu, his father. As instructed by his father on his deathbed, Yehuda assumes his role as captain of the Jewish forces. All the Jews who followed Matityahu unanimously accept Yehuda as their new leader, and led by him, they set out with vigor to fight the battles of their people. Now this seems as good a time as any to go off on a slight tangent and spend a little time discussing the actual battle tactics of the Maccabees. First of all, let's think about how the Greeks fought. Now the Greeks are famous for fighting in a phalanx, in a large unit of 16 by 16 soldiers who protected themselves with a wall of locked shields, pointing a lethal wall of pikes, long spears, straight ahead to create a truly formidable weapon. The heavily armoured phalanx was the weapon that allowed Alexander the Great to be victorious in his battles against the Persians when he went forth to conquer the world. But for the phalanx to work, and here's the crucial bit, you need the space to make it work. You need enough space for 16 soldiers to walk side by side with shields locked and spears leveled. In a place like, say, Egypt, this wouldn't be a problem because the only inhabitable places in Egypt are those watered by the River Nile, and to be accessible to the Nile's rising floodwaters, these farmlands had to be relatively flat. Indeed, in a flat country like Egypt, you have plenty of space for a phalanx to fight. But Eretz Israel is not like Egypt. Granted, you do have the relatively flat Sharam plain along the coast, but for the most part, Eretz Israel is best described by the Pasuk in Parshat Ekev. Eretz Harim Uvaka'ot Limtar HaShemayim Tishdemayim A land of mountains and valleys which soaks up its water from the rains of heaven. Anyone who has been to Yehuda Vashamran can testify just how many hills and valleys there are, and quite frankly, I'd describe it as the opposite of flat. The hills are rocky and steep-sided, and the valleys are extremely narrow. There's a reason why the Maccabees set up their base camp in the hills there. Can you imagine a Greek phalanx trying to stagger through the twisty maze of valleys between the hills, carrying 80 pounds of armor each, along with weapons, trying to keep their balance and maintain the phalanx? It can't be done. And then what happens when your Greek forces are picking their way through the valley and suddenly a band of vicious Jews appears from above, armed with bows and slingshots, raining arrows and hurling stones down upon you? And what do you do when you panic and turn round and the band of Jews storms down into the valley and hurl themselves at your soldiers, killing dozens of them, then dispersing back at the mountain slope like goats, disappearing in ten different directions behind rocks and trees, so that even if you could mobilize your forces to launch an attack, you wouldn't know which way to turn? And what happens when the Jews launch attacks like these over and over and over again until you have no choice but to flee for your life back the way you came, with hundreds of dead mercenaries carpeting the valley behind you and an arrow stuck in your toga? This was the tactic of the Maccabees. The Greeks had boundless weapons, armor, a near endless supply of mercenaries, and also war elephants, which we'll speak more about later. We, the Jews, had the land and the people with a burning desire for freedom. In this war, the land itself became our strength and our weapon, 
we would lead the Greek soldiers after us into the narrow valleys, then ambush them from above with our signature weapons. The slingshot, which David the Melech famously used to bring down the Pelishti giant Goliath, and the bow, which were used to fill the skies with iron-tipped cedar arrows, which we would rain down on the Greeks. The Greeks became so afraid of this wave of arrows falling from the sky that they even came up with a name for it, Judean rain. If they tried to follow us up the mountainside, we would disperse and disappear in many different directions, making it impossible for them to follow us. And anyway, can you imagine a Greek chasing a nimble Jew up a steep mountain slope in 50 pounds of armour? He might make it 10 feet before either running out of breath or being caught by a stone or arrow. In our war against the Greeks, Eretz Israel became our fortress and our weapon. She served us well, and we served her. It took a long time, but eventually this tactic wore down the Greeks so much that they left Judea for good. This shouldn't come as a surprise. I learned from Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen a piece of revolutionary theory, that in a war of liberation, if you make the price of occupation higher than the benefits of exploitation, the occupier will leave. What this means is that while the Greeks were able to remain in Judea, taking all our crops and other goods, meeting little or no resistance, they weren't very likely to leave. Why would they? They were reaping in the benefits, and there was no cost of staying. But once there arose an army of Jews dedicated to fighting the Greeks, and this army of Jews begins carpeting the valleys of Judea with Greek dead, it wasn't worth their while to stay anymore. So they left. This anti-colonial tactic would be later repeated by many a revolutionary movement, including the Jewish underground fighters in the 1940s, who, following in the footsteps of the Maccabees, fought to free Eretz Israel this time from British rule. Now let's return to the text. Yehuda HaMaccabee leads the Jewish army across the length and breadth of Judea, wiping out all traces of idolatry he comes across, destroying the wicked men from the midst of Israel. The text describes Yehuda as Aryeh a lion roaring for his prey, a term David HaMelech often uses in Tehillim. Yehuda's reputation spreads. The Greeks and Hellenist Jews begin to cower in fear of this legendary Jewish warrior who brings salvation to his people wherever he goes. As Yehuda's fame grows, so do the ranks of his army. Jews with nothing left to lose are flocking to join him, completely ready to lay down their lives to ensure the freedom of Eretz Israel and freedom for their people. By now the whole world knows the name of Yehuda HaMakabi. So it's hardly surprising that Apollonius, the Greek general appointed by Antiochus as the warden of Judea, becomes aware of this band of Jewish rebels amassing in the mountains to revolt against him. Naturally, it's his job to put a stop to this sort of thing. So Apollonius gathers 2,000 Greek and foreign mercenaries and moves south from the city of Shamron, intending to put a firm end to this ridiculous band of petty Jewish fighters. He plans to slaughter them all and get back to his camp in time for dinner. But when news of this approaching Greek army reaches Yehuda, he doesn't wait for them to reach him. He takes 600 of his men and sets out to meet them first. Using their tactics of coming at the Greeks from above, the Maccabees fight their first major battle, raining down stones and arrows on the Greeks, then storming down into the valley to massacre the panicked mercenaries and escaping back up the hills like goats. The Maccabees are victorious and they slay many of the mercenaries. Yehuda kills Apollonius with his own bare hands, and the rest of the mercenaries turn and flee. Yehuda gathers up the spoils left behind to take back to their camp, and for himself, he takes the sword of the slain Apollonius which becomes his personal sword to wield in every battle until his last. This is a significant fact when we consider the fighting style of the ancient Hebrews. 
The swords of the ancient Hebrews were not like the swords we think of today, which are shaped like the Christian cross to symbolize how one who holds it is fighting for the cross. The ancient Hebrews used curved swords shaped like sickles. In fact, although all the tribes were obligated to join the national army, we see from the blessings of Yaakov and Moshe in Parashiyot Vayechi and Vazosabracha that the tribe of Gad were specifically focused on raising the best soldiers and army commanders. And they actually had a unique fighting style. Rashi on Devarim tells us how when the soldiers of Gad would kill an enemy soldier, they would cut off their head and right arm in a single swipe. There were only two people in Jewish history who fought with a different style of sword. One was Yehuda HaMakkabi, who, as we just saw in our text, takes the sword of Apollonius, which was shaped like the straight swords we know of today. The other person was David HaMelech, who arrives at the Mishkan in Nov in Shmuel Aleph, starving and on the run from Shaul. And he asks Achimelech the Kohen Gadol to give him bread and the sword of the giant Goliath, who David killed himself. This sword was also not like the curved swords of the Hebrews, but was also straight. So we see that David HaMelech and Yehuda HaMakkabi were the only two ancient Hebrews to fight with a different kind of sword. Now back to the book of Maccabees. News of the defeat of Apollonius has reached the ears of Saron, a high-ranking officer in the Syrian Greek army. Saron stands up and proclaims, I'll be the one to go and fight Yehuda and his band of rebels. I'll Hellenize the lot of them or else kill them, and I'll earn such a good reputation my name will be known throughout the empire. Modest, no? So Saron prepares a mighty host of men and sets off towards Judea to avenge the Greek losses. The army enters Judea and approaches the ascent of Bet Haron, which is in the Judean hills about halfway between Modian and Jerusalem. To reach the Maccabean camp located in the Gophna hills, the Greeks were trying to march their armies eastward up into the mountains, but the topography of Eretz Israel meant there were only a few places where the Greeks could actually ascend. Apparently, the natural canyon of Bet Haron was one of them. Meanwhile, Yehuda is approaching from the other direction with a small group of men. When they reach the crest of the ascent and see the massive Greek army spread out beneath them, Yehuda's men ask him, How shall we, being so few, be able to fight against such a great strong multitude, seeing as that we are ready to faint with fasting all this day? Because before a battle, the Jewish soldiers would fast and do teshuva, in an effort to make themselves worthy of receiving divine assistance in battle. Because, of course, it's really Hashem who fights our battles. Yehuda answers them, Hayat Hashem Tiktar, the Ted Rabim Ma'atim. Is the hand of Hashem limited, that it cannot give the many into the hands of the few? And he adds, They come against us with their possessions and armies to destroy us along with our wives and children. But we fight for our lives and for our Torah. Victory in battle is not achieved through mighty armies, but through strength from heaven. Hashem will overthrow them before us. Do not fear. No sooner has Yehuda finished speaking when he leaps up and hurtles down the mountainside, hurling himself at the heavily armoured mercenaries, wielding the sword of Apollonius and stabbing and killing everyone in his path. Saron and his army are completely overthrown by the sudden appearance of the Maccabee. Encouraged, Yehuda's men leap up after him and they too charge down bet killing all the Greeks they can reach. The Greek army has no choice but to turn and flee westward towards the coastal plain, where they take refuge in the walled cities by the coast. But 800 mercenaries fall at Bet-Haran, and it's another miraculous victory for the Maccabees. Now see what Amunah and Betachon Yehud HaMaccabee has in Hashem. Just like David HaMelech, despite his miraculous victories, Yehud never becomes conceited or takes credit for himself. Rather, he gives up all of his successes to Hashem. 
Now, this is just a personal thought, but I believe this giving up all credit to Hashem was one of the key factors that contributed to the eventual Jewish victory. Why do I say this? Although at the time of the revolts, Bnei Israel were divided into factions, as we've already mentioned, we, the Jews, won because we remained humble and never forgot the true source of our strength. In contrast, more than 250 years later, after the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, Bnei Israel revolted again to free Judea from the Roman Empire. Rabbi Ken Spira writes in his book, Crash Course in Jewish History, that at that time, all the Jews were completely united, no factions, nothing, all united around the leader of the revolt, Shimon Bar Koziba, or Bar Kachba as he became known. Yet we lost the Bar Kachba revolt when the Roman soldiers broke through the walls of the city of Betar and proceeded to massacre the 580,000 Jews taking refuge there, not one of whom surrendered. Why did we lose? Chazal said because we were too arrogant. We adopted the attitude of by my strength and the might of my hand, I did this. So it's clear just how crucial this humility and deference to Hashem is for any Jewish captain of war. After this victory at Bet Haran, Yehuda and his men become more famous than ever before, and the nations of the world are terrified of him. Even Antiochus Epiphanes has heard of him by now, and of course he's livid. He begins to gather all the forces in the Seleucid Empire to mobilize against the Jews. And he even opens his treasury and uses his hard-earned wealth to pay his soldiers in advance for a full year of fighting. Then he realizes he has a problem. He doesn't have enough money. His decrees of Hellenization, on top of all the other troubles throughout the empire, have taken their toll on the royal treasury. So he decides to take half his forces on an expedition into Persia with the aim of raising more money by forcing other countries there still under his rule to pay tribute. Antiochus also hopes on this expedition to reconquer the Parthians, who declared independence from Seleucid Greece several decades before. The Parthians were a people living in western Iran who excelled at archery, and around the year 200 BCE, or 3560, they fought successfully against the Seleucid rulers, declared independence, and established an empire that would go on to last a little over 400 years. And I learned this information about the Parthians from a fellow Talmud at Maishiva. Antiochus hopes he will be able to reconquer these newly independent Parthians and thereby force them to pay him tribute. As mentioned before, the Parthians are wicked at archery and not easily overcome, but Antiochus is so desperate he's willing to do anything to earn more money to use to fight the Jews. Before he leaves, Antiochus entrusts the other half of his men to a Greek nobleman called Lysias, with instructions to raise Antiochus' young son, also called Antiochus, and to raise Judea to the ground at all costs. Not wishing to disobey the king's command, Lysias selects three Seleucid generals named Ptolemy, Nicanor, and Gorgias. And he sends these three to Judea with 40,000 foot soldiers and 7,000 cavalry, a truly mighty host. And they have only one mission, to paraphrase the passage from Tehillim. Aru, Aru, Atayasodba, destroy, destroy to the very foundation. The army approaches and establishes their base camp in Emmaus, which is also located on the coastal plain west of the mountains. During their journey, they kidnap thousands of Jews and force them to accompany them. And the local non-Jewish merchants come to buy these captured Jews as slaves for themselves. Also, thousands of the non-Jews living on the coastal plain are drafted into the Seleucid army, who are looking to swell their ranks as much as they can. As news of all these ensuing tragedies reach the ears of the Jews in Judea, but how Antiochus has decreed that every last one of them must be obliterated from the face of the earth, 
how the blood of Jews flows in the city streets like water, how the enormous Seleucid army is encamped on the borders of Judea, preparing to come in and slaughter them. Yehuda gathers the Jews in Mitzpah, north of Yerushalayim, because although portions of Judea have been liberated by now, Yerushalayim is still in Greek hands. And opposite Harhabayat, the Acre stands tall when the Greek officials and Hellenist Jews strut like lords. In Mitzpah, the Jews fast the entire day, tear their clothes and don sackcloth and ashes. The Jews raise their voices heavenward and exclaim, Master of the world, your sanctuary is profaned, your Sifre Torah are burned and your holy books defiled. We cannot use the Veg Dei Kuhuna, and there is no place where we can bring our Bikurim. The other nations are gathering together to destroy us. Only you know what abominable things they desire to do to us. How can we stand against them if your right hand does not save us? After this heart-rending plea to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Yehuda becomes practical and organizes his troops, dividing them into groups of 10, 50, 100, and 1,000, and appointing captains over each group. But Jehuda also sends away all those that the Torah exempts from fighting, as laid down in Parsha Shoftim, all who have built a house but not lived in it, all who have planted a vineyard but not redeemed it, and all who have betrothed a woman and not married her. It might occur to you that in some respects, Yehuda is acting very much like Yaakov Avinu when he prepares to face Esav. Yaakov davens, sends gifts to Esav, and prepares his camp for war. However, Yehuda does not try sending any gifts to the Greeks to placate them. The only gift they'll be receiving from him is a burned base camp, but we'll have to wait for the next chapter for that. Then he addresses the remaining men. Be ready in the morning to fight these nations who have come to destroy us in our Mikdash. For it is best for us to die in battle rather than to live to see all the calamity that has befallen our people. Nevertheless, whatever is good in Hashem's eyes, so he will do. And on that climactic note, we have reached the end of chapter 3. We'll resume next time to find out exactly what happens when Gorgias, the general, decides to launch a surprise attack against Yehudah and his men.